Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone. My name is Nikolas Wittstock, and in this episode, I speak to Blaine Haggard. Blaine is professor of political science at Brock University in Canada. And in our conversation, we discuss the political economy of platforms and platform governance. So platforms like Facebook, Amazon, Uber, Airbnb, or YouTube have grown tremendously in their economic and political importance in recent years. And a growing number of people is pointing out that the way in which these entities are currently governed may be insufficient or possibly gives rise to negative side effects, which has led a lot of people to call for new ways of regulating them. And how to regulate these platforms is exactly what this conversation is all about. Hello, Blaine Haggard. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, we're happy to have you on. You have uh, written extensively on the political economy of the internet. Uh, you actually co-edited the book that Natasha Tuzikov presented here on the podcast uh, a few months ago, which uh, is entitled Power and Authority in Internet Governance, um, which is yeah pretty much directly related to what we're going to be talking about today. Specifically, what I want to discuss is platform governance. And it's a term that is being thrown out, uh, thrown around a lot in, in debates uh, currently. But what exactly is platform governance is where I would like to start. And then obviously related the question, why is everyone talking about it? Sure. Well, I think first we, uh, the first thing we can focus on is the question about what is a platform because, mm -hmm. uh, because platform governance, it's basically the rules related to, uh, to running whatever we call these things as platforms and who's responsible for that. But the thing about, the thing about platforms and when we talk about platforms is that it sounds like it's uh, one of those concepts that should be relatively easy to kind of, to, uh, get a hold of. Mm -hmm. um, and you're absolutely right that everyone's, you know, platform governance is kind of one of the flavors of the day. But when you, when you look at it and when you look at how it's been used over the past, uh, say, decade or so, you know, it, it kind of comes clear that people use it in different ways um, and it can mean different things to, uh, to different people. So um, I like to think of it. There's, a, there's two thinkers I kind of go to when mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking about platforms. So the first one is uh, Nick Shrinicek, uh, and he wrote a, a, a wonderful um, and, you know, very short and, and concise book called Platform Capitalism. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it came out in about 2018 or 2017 or so. Anyway, what he emphasizes is, is platforms as kind of these two-sided markets that are set up effectively to, mark, to maximize data collection. So it's not just, uh, it's not just uh, like, say, Facebook as a platform, but it's also something like, uh, like, uh, like Uber or Airbnb. Mm -hmm. Um, or really any company that, um, or, or, or Spotify, really. So any company where it's basically part of, you know, is re-engineered to, uh, to collect data. I'm simplifying a bit there, but that's kind of the idea. Oftentimes, though, like platform also gets used as, uh, you know, not only to refer to those kind of models and those two-sided those two -side markets, but it often gets referred to, it's used to refer to uh, social media companies or companies like, mm. say, YouTube. Um, and for that area, I kind of turned to Tarleton Gillespie, who has, a, again, a fantastic article that comes from a 2010 uh, called The Politics of Platforms. And platforms is in kind of like, uh, I guess, square, scare quotes. He's writing just at the time where people are, this word is starting to come into common usage. And, you know, people are trying to figure out, well, what are these, you know, what is not only what is a platform, more to the point is, what are these things that we now call platforms? Like uh, like uh, Google Search or Facebook or Airbnb and all and YouTube. What are these actual things? And he, he, his uh, his great contribution is that he points out the platform can mean different things to different people. And one of its main contention, one of the main things that it does is it uh, it suggests a kind of uh, air, like an air of neutrality that you know it's providing a a, a, a you know a platform a, a grounds on which you know to connect more to people to connect people um and businesses and whatever uh in a more or less neutral way so it's a it's a way to raise people up to way to connect people 
But of course, that's not all, that's not really what these companies actually do, or, or that's, you know, that's only part of it. Um, because, and this is for, I think, Gillespie, the key is that it kind of pretends that there are, that these things are neutral, that these, these entities, these companies uh, have no rules in place. Um, and, you know, it elides the, uh, as he points out, it elides the presence of advertisers, and commercial media, provi- uh, you know, providers in the case of YouTube, or the fact that they're also set up to make money. And so this is very useful when dealing with regulators who are, you know, who are saying like, you know, maybe we should be, what should we do with these kinds of companies? They can say, no, no, we're just, we're platforms. And right there, that's the kind of sense of neutrality, um, as opposed to, um, you know, an old school uh, kind of purveyor of commercial content or, or, you know, just a company like, you know, like any company, there's rules of play. It's not just a neutral open, open uh, space. And so when we use the word platform, that's one of the main things that gets uh, pushed to the side, that the notion that there are always rules governing, you know, in the case of content, governing who's able to access what content, who's able to be heard or not heard. The question's always who's setting it. Right. Um, I think that's a very uh, good first introduction to the idea of what a platform is. I would argue that um, Uber may be the, the purest platform in, in the sense that I understand the term, in the sense that if you think about, okay, what is Uber? What, what is the service that Uber itself is providing? It's, it's really the platform service, right? It's connecting people that need to go somewhere with people that have time and a car to drive someone somewhere, right? So that's, and, and what is Uber doing? Uber is really not doing much except for, you know, connecting those two parties. Yes. But my, my question would be, okay, um, that, that makes sense. And I, th- I see that, you know, the way in which this platform is set up, right? Like what are the internal policies? How um, are incentives um, structured through the way in which this uh, platform is set up, right? I mean, people talk about a lot about search pricing in the case of Uber, but also questions of, you know, how are drivers rated, who gets to be on the platform, things like that. Obviously, that shape a lot of the outcomes that we then see in the real world. However, you know, this, this term of platform governance is obviously applied to all kinds of different entities that are facing a lot of different kind of challenges, both in the public eye, but also in terms of just how to govern the spaces that they create, right? I mean, Amazon is considered a platform. Craigslist, I suppose, is a platform. Facebook. Yeah, you mentioned some other examples. Um, What's the through line here? Why are we referring to with this very wide definition, right? Or with this very wide term of platform to all these different entities? Well, here we can go back to Charlton Gillespie's article, and he points out that Mm -hmm. the use of the word platform is not neutral, and it didn't just come Mm -hmm. out of nowhere because, Mm -hmm. oh, well, this is the best way to describe this thing. Um, What he points out is that how we think about the, that that basically our choices of words um, are are an attempt to game uh, the regulation of these companies. So like, so, and and Uber is a very good example. And just yesterday in my class, we were talking about this exact issue um, about, about, you know, what is Uber? Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I'll say too, is that it's useful to think about a company like Uber when thinking about these issues and rulemaking and who has power rather than say like Facebook or or YouTube, because um, when we talk about those companies and I'm sure we will, you know, at, at some point in this conversation, but when we talk about those companies, it's very much tied up in very kind of like, you know, kind of like third rail issues of, of speech and speech regulation and censorship and things like this that get, you know, that, that uh, you know, can, can, you know, get people's hackles up and, you know, people have very strong feelings about these and for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But when we look at something like Uber, when it's basically we're talking about more of a commercial play mm-hmm. um, or a straight up commercial play that, you know, that isn't directly have anything to do with kind of like issues of free speech it's easier to see the dynamics at work and it's right. the same with dynamics at work um on on with respect to uber as it is with say uh, youtube so uber the, the, the question that uh you know the question that my students were trying to come up with is like you know is it a company is it a taxi company or is it a platform um and this kind of you know in a sense kind of broke some of my students brains as they're trying to reason through it because you know, they were saying, you know, from their perspective, as, as, as basically customers, it's obviously a taxi company. 
right? It, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, as one of my students says, I, I don't understand why we're even talking about this. I, you know, I basically you put in a call or like you, you use the app to summon a cab or a car. The car comes and picks me up. They drive me someplace. I pay them. So it's obvious right. and it takes place in a space of the mm-hmm. city. So it's obviously a taxi cab. But then another one of our students says, well, you know, it seems like, you know, Uber in one sense, it's kind of talking out of both sides of its mouth because, um, you know, it's a, it provides a service that it is from the consumer's perspective, completely indistinguishable from a taxi service, like a taxi provider. But if it's seen as a platform, then they don't have to be regulated like a taxi company. They don't have to like, you know, worry about, uh, you know, the, the, the monopoly that is often placed on say like taxi license plates in a lot of cities or the regulations that, that drivers have to go through. So the question that we ended up with asking is that maybe the, the proper question is, if you're Uber or if you're Facebook or if you're any of these other companies, do you wanna be known as, well, in Uber's case, do you wanna be known as a taxi company or do you wanna be known as a platform oh. or an app? And the answer that everyone came down to is you'd wanna be known as an app because if you're not thought of as a taxi company, then automatically you don't have any of these obligations that the quote unquote real companies actually have, including um, to, uh, to the workers on the platform. Mm. And they're okay. used the word platform to describe right. it. So it's one of those <laughs> words that it's really kind of, uh, it's hard to avoid because it's, it's, it's how we think now. Exactly. Now, that's really interesting. Could you elaborate on that? What, what is exactly the political and commercial appeal of describing yourself as a platform? You, you mentioned this in passing, that is a very neutral term that maybe suggests that, you know, maybe no regulation or very, very light touch regulation may be in order. Why, why is that the case? Part of it, it has to do with a technological exceptionalism, internet exceptionalism, the idea that the internet and technology uh, and I'm speaking here of digital technology as it's developed should, you know, is, is kind of a, is a technology of freedom and it should, and it should be kind of treated as lightly as possible to keep things as neutral as possible, because if things are neutral, if they're, if things are completely flat um, in a sense, then any kind of interference with that would kind of upset the quote unquote natural order of things. Mm. The problem, though, is that, and this gets back to kind of Gillespie's, one of Gillespie's key points, is that these platforms are never neutral. There are always rules at play, um, and they're always for somebody, they're always for some purpose. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be insidious or anything like that, um, because the point is you always have rules. Somebody's always setting the rules, and they're going to benefit certain groups, and they're not going to benefit other ones. Um, so if you look at if you look at Google or sorry if you look at uh, Uber as a as a taxi company, then okay we know exactly what we have to do with that. Um, you know you want to you know and if you'd looked at it that way, Uber would never have been able to break into these uh, you know in, into any of these markets. Um, and you know of course they've done so by you know not, there's no costs associated with the regulation. They're um, you know they can just basically you know basically attract contract drivers at will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's uh, it becomes much, uh, and they also provide services by undercutting the the uh, incumbent industry. So it's a it's a lot easier to run things if you don't have if you don't face the uh, same regulatory burden as the uh, as the companies you're competing against. Does that mean that that's uh, an argument across the board that you can make that um, it might be important to to really consider what the outcomes of of uh, the actions of those platforms are? So you know. To, to be a, bit, a little bit more specific, you know, Facebook could be considered some sort of public forum platform kind of thing that, that just sort of connects people and allows them to speak to each other. Um, or you could um, consider it something like a publisher or something like that. And that would then have very different implications for regulation. I, I think the, the key point is to recognize that when we use the word platform, it has certain connotations mm-hmm. um, and that it, they don't necessarily capture the full extent of what the, what they do. Um, for instance, for and again, I'm just again pulling on on Gillespie. You know, it's an 11 year article, but it's still you know I think that the debate would be on these issues would be much healthier if people referred to it more. Mm-hmm. Um, but with with respect to uh, say something something like YouTube, when you're talking to regulators, you say, oh, YouTube can say you know you, you shouldn't regulate us because it's user generated content, right? And when you do that, you're stifling free speech. Mm. At the same time, too, though, and that's very convincing, right? It's like, you know, we, yeah. that's, we don't want to do that. 
But at the same time, too, it ignores that YouTube is a for-profit entity that monetizes the a lot of the content on its platform, while also making deals with commercial provider, uh, providers of commercial content. So this isn't user-generated content. It's a straight-up money-making content designed to, uh, you know, that the people are trying to sell, which sounds a lot more like a traditional media company. So the use of the word platform, it shifts the discussion in a certain way. In Canada, we've we've had the discussions or, or you know, this past spring about whether or not companies like YouTube should be considered as uh, as broadcasters. Um, and that's often treated, that's often seen as a, as a legal question. And mm-hmm. at the end, at the end result, it is like when you're actually trying to change policy into law, um, you know, it should it be under the Broadcasting Act? Should it be under another act? Should it be just, you know, treated in a completely different way? Or should right. government try to ignore it at all? These are all legal questions. And, you know, when you get into specific uh, legal frameworks, how you define something matters. Um, and I, for that, I defer to people who, you know, who work deeply in this area and also legal scholars who focus on, like, for instance, the Broadcasting Act. But in terms of policy, it's important to also recall that the word platform doesn't fully capture everything that these that these companies do, um, and that it's that they're not just a neutral, uh, you know, playing ground for everybody. All right. So then let's uh, slightly shift gears here and ask: um, Well, how are these platforms regulated at the moment, um, or how are they governed? I suppose at this time. I would assume that there is a significant amount of variation in between some of these different examples, but maybe I'm wrong. What what do you think? Do you mean examples? Are we talking now social media companies or just in general? Well, that's a great question. right? (laughs) So um, first of all, I suppose the biggest topic, uh, at least in the public eye, tends to be social media companies that are lumped in with this loose definition of platforms. So maybe let's start there. Sure. Um, And and I think you're right. Um, Oftentimes, when even when like uh, you know academics and experts get around, you know meet to talk about platform governance, oftentimes it uh, it gets narrowed down right to social media and often down to like say Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I mean, from a from a kind of a global governance perspective, companies like uh, like uh, like Facebook are are just fascinating because there's there's a lot of things going on. So on the one hand, you've got uh, Facebook governing itself by its uh, by its own terms of service. So the you know the rules that it decides are, uh, are you know should govern how people act on 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 its uh, on their network. Um, at the same time, so you've got that, and that seems to be that's the kind of the the main thing that they go by. Um, in other countries, there are rules about what is not allowed on on these. Uh, on like say these so let's call call them social media platforms right Mm -hmm. and you know for instance something like copyright infringement you know companies you know take that very seriously because governments take that very seriously same things with for instance the you know uh, sexual exploitation of children and increasingly you know for instance like you know uh, terrorist content things like that so that facebook's taking terms of service would be kind of you know structured you know to respond a little bit to that, but they're, they are the ones who set the primary rules. At the same time too, Facebook is an American company. And right. so, so they are more apt to respond to kind of, both, both to embody American perspectives on, on, on speech regulation and also to respond to, to US uh, problems that are seen to emerge with respect to uh, Facebook and social media if they happen in the United States. Than if they happen, say, uh, someplace in Asia or uh, or even mm-hmm. in Canada. The way I think about uh, social media regulation or social media governance is that the rules primarily set within Facebook in response to you know coming out of kind of both a, an American uh, kind of social and legal tradition and kind of tweaked on the margins in other countries to respond to local sensibilities. But again, much less, they're much less sensitive to that than they are to uh, what happens in the United States. Okay. Um, so what's the problem with that? Um... <laughs> so, so the problem is that uh, what this means from other, for other countries' perspectives is that Facebook is not responsive to, to their interests and that Facebook's perspective on what counts as, uh, as appropriate regulation of, of speech and, and content on its platforms does not necessarily fit what 
say like uh, what uh, a mainstream opinion in Europe or Canada or or elsewhere uh, might think. Mm-hmm. So it's a question of who's setting these these rules. And again, it's also about the responsiveness to this. So for instance, Facebook has been under a lot of pressure, uh, you know, over the past year. There's the, there was the Facebook whistleblower more recently. There was also the January 6th uh, insurrection in the uh, in uh, at the Capitol that basically has caused a lot of people to question, you know, how, how Facebook conducts its business. The interesting thing about that, one of the interesting things about that, though, is that this conversation could have happened numerous times over the uh, rest of over the past decade if Americans and American lawmakers had actually cared about what happens in the rest of the world. So for instance, you know, the United Nations infamously linked Facebook's activities in Myanmar to an actual genocide, Right. which is if I'm running a company, the last thing I want to be associated with is a genocide. Um, And yet this did not spur calls for basically Facebook's banning or Facebook's complete reform or anything. It was just kind of like, you know, it, it, you know, people mention it from time to time, but it, you know, it's a, it's a failed insurrection in, in U.S. capital, which is of course, incredibly, incredibly serious that actually captures the people who actually matters, captures their attention um, about, you know, to deal with these things. And so this is, this is a problem. Maybe let me mention this uh, at this point. So, I mean, one of the important distinct economic properties of platforms, at least classically conceived, uh, are network effects, meaning that um, some of the appeal of the platform come or the, the main appeal, frankly, comes from the fact that from the fact that everyone else is there. Yeah, network effects, meaning that it, the more people that are on the site, the more valuable it becomes. Now, there's obviously an element of, of market governance that limits what these companies can do. So, so one question would be, well, if there is a problem with these companies, it seems to be that the problem is really not necessarily emanating from the company itself or from the platform itself, but from the fact that people really want to be on there, right? So, so, so why are people still on there if it's such an issue? Sure. Um, and I think you're absolutely right to, uh, to um, highlight the importance of, of, these, of these network effects. Mm-hmm. And what that leads to is, you know, the sense that, you know, the optimal social network is one that everybody is on, right? Right. Right. Um, and from, an, from, you know, the economy, you know, the economics uh, perspective on that was that, of course, is a condition of monopoly. Um, and the, you know, the classical interpretations of monopoly is that this is a market failure. If you've got a monopoly, it's kind of almost a moot point to, to ask, you know, well, why is somebody still on this network? Well, the answer is mm-hmm. because it's a monopoly, there's nowhere for them to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this, this in itself is a problem. And the classical response to, uh, to dealing with this issue is there's, you know, you can try to either uh, introduce competition into the marketplace or that you need some kind of, of government regulation. And it, that's, you know, that's kind of straight up of how that, uh, how that issue is dealt with. Mm-hmm. And of course, it, with, with, uh, with, with uh, companies like Facebook or Twitter or, or what have you, or, or even like Google search, the, the question is, uh, the problem is compounded because these are American companies effectively with global monopolies. So it becomes even harder to, uh, to deal with. But the classic response to, uh, to, the, uh, to the problem of monopoly, and it is a problem, is to e- either to regulate or to try to make the market more competitive. Yeah, but what is the problem with that? Um, because, you know, very maybe overly naive uh, response <laughs> to some of these issues would be to say, you know, if you don't like Facebook, then, then make a better social media platform. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's where network uh, effects come in because right. it's, it's harder to, once you've got the network established, its value is because everybody's on there. Um, it's, it's hard to convince other people to, uh, to switch, uh, to, switch uh, to something that only has, like say, uh, you and me on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which is very good for us. We can talk, but you know, who else is going to come join us? It, it's, I'm sure everyone would join us. Uh, you know what? Actually, <laughs> yeah, so that's probably a bad example, isn't it? So maybe two <laughs> other people. Um, but the other thing too is is uh, you know going takes us back to Nick Shrenichek's point about platforms being designed to gather data, and so data it's it's not really this kind of like magical brainwashing type thing that you know that'll basically changes how we all think or anything like this. You know, as it happens, you know, from from what I've seen, there's some suspicion about whether or not, for instance, personalized advertising actually 
delivers the effects that it that uh, that that say like Facebook um, and, and Google say it does. Mm. But what it, what data does do, and this is the this is the beauty of being kind of a uh, uh, a two sided market is that you can see how everybody is acting and seeing mm. what what things that your your customers that say like the the uh, kind of like individual users like on the one side of the platform and also how the companies who are delivering them services on your platform uh you know how they're acting um and you can use that to to basically improve your your product to keep the, to keep them on there and also stifling competition the issue is further complicated just by the kind of the nature of of the industry that these companies for various reasons have access to a whole bunch of, a whole boatload of money that over the past you know decade they've been using to buy up uh, competitors, and right. that's you know and that's one thing that's being uh, investigated, particularly in the United States, with the renewed uh, um, attention to uh, to antitrust. So the the question that I want to continue on here is, to what extent you know some of the negative effects of um, say social media platforms in particular, to what extent is this a governance problem or a business model problem? Because you know, one position would be to say, oh, you know, I mean, YouTube um, has been, you know, associated with a radicalization of people on the internet uh, because of the way that uh, they algorithmically amplify certain content or rather actually algorithmically cue certain content to keep you engaged on the platform, right? So it tends to have apparently um, some sort of radicalization effect where you get cued with more videos that lead you into these rabbit holes, apparently. Similarly, Facebook, I think it's relatively clear that it appears to be that outrageous content keeps people more engaged. So the platform has a tendency to to use that kind of content to to, to drive engagement. Now, the question here is, is this something you can fix regulatorily? Or is this something that is effectively the lifeblood of these social media companies that without these things, there really is no business model? Well, I think the way to approach that, um, I think you're kind of asking, I don't see a distinction necessarily between regulation and business model. Okay. Because the, the, the way that I, I hear you setting it up um, there, and, and apologies if I'm, if I'm misunderstanding no, 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 what no, you're right. saying, but... It's, it's kind of treating the business model sacrosanct that the only, if you want to have social media, the only thing that you can do is to basically uh, depend on kind of like, you know, surveillance based uh, targeted advertising. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. There's a, you, you know, if it's, if social media just in general is something that is societally worth having, mm-hmm. we can figure out ways to deliver it. That does that do not rely on um, on on advertising. For instance, if, if advertising is at the heart of it, and there's reasons to think that it, it might be. Um, so, for instance, you could have a uh, have a model where basically where targeted advertising is banned, which means that you have to go back to the kind of the, the display ads that uh, you know that we had in the days of yore in the early 2000s. You could require uh, subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, uh, you know, as you know, just reading an article in the Washington Post this morning points out that the nice thing about a subscription is that it allows kind of like the information that comes from prices to actually kind of influence things as opposed to people just kind of signing up for free and uh, not really understanding like all the negative things that happen just because you're not, you might not be direct negatively affected by it. So you can do it by price. You could also set it up um, on a, you know, I, I wrote a, uh, you know, article a few years ago um, or not bad, basically, why not nationalize Facebook? Mm. And I meant that kind of just as, you know, like, well, why not? Let's try to think this through. But, you know, it isn't necessarily kind of an unprecedented idea because in Canada here, we have the, the CBC, which mm. is, it's uh, treated as a crown corporation, which means that it is, um, you know, it's paid for by taxpayers, um, uh, but it is formally independent of the government, and it's you know it, it's got a long tradition of uh, of independence. And so there's ways to set these you know and state and, and like state um, you know broadcasters, for instance, like the BBC in the UK, uh, you know, have a long history these of uh, of uh, you know of existence without you know falling you know becoming com- a complete like kind of tool of an authoritarian state. So. And again, you know, the tradition, one of the, again, one of the traditional responses to problems of monopoly is, you know, figure out how to regulate it and regulate it. So it actually works in the, in the public interest. 
or um, or kind of, you can nationalize it and do it a little bit more uh, directly. But again, like I said, you know, doesn't have to be you know run by government hacks or anything like that. So right. regulation, what I'm saying is basically regulation can focus not just directly on kind of the content. Uh, and we can talk about that because you know that, that that's where a lot of the problems come you know come from. But it can also focus on on the back end, on the business model. Th- th- that's great. Yeah, thank you. So just to make this even more complicated. <laughs> Shoshana Zuboff, uh, famously, I think, has a slightly different conception of what some of these, especially social media companies are, where she argues that they've effectively created new markets that aren't immediately obvious in, in what they do. And she's effective. And, and I think that's what I was trying to get at with the idea of business model in the sense that, you know, she conceives of Facebook or um, even Google, but I suppose Google is not necessarily a platform as, as companies. yeah great you'll have to to tell us all about that but the way that she conceives of it right is that first of all the the people who are on the platform are not the clients of the of the platform right so that's important i think you know people always say this well if you're not paying for it then you're the product um she's taking this even further arguing well that's not really what is happening either it's more that your future behavior is what is being traded here on on the market affected the market is um either advertisers or people that are actually selling um products and what the platform is doing is it's it's either trying to influence uh the 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 users um that are on the platform in a way that is congenial with the interests of either the people that are selling products or people that are advertising or whatever so the question here is you know i'm not sure if you can if you object to that for whatever reasons i'm not sure if you can put this if you can legislate or slash regulate this in any way that would you know make this any less problematic if you consider it to be a problem or if this is really the case that you have to completely ban this kind of market altogether i think one of the thing that uh shoshana zuboff does uh very well and probably better than anyone um i've read is you know, it is to make clear what's going on when we're talking about kind of like, you know, the rise of the data economy, at least with respect to personal data. There's a much bigger dimension that Zuboff faces completely. But, um, but what she, you know, that idea that when you're looking at, like, say, Google Maps, right? you know, Google Maps, it's, you know, and again, for, you know, this platform, what it's signed up to do, what it actually does in terms of the business model is it's actually a data collection device. It's a honeypot mm-hmm. for collecting data. Where I disagree, one of the ways where I disagree with Zuboff, though, is I, I think that she kind of overstates the nature of the uh, the nature of the the problem in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like I mean, in her book, it's very much set up as it's very much a polemic. Um, her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and it, and it's you know it's it's enormous. I mean, I, I I I did a long review of it, and I counted how many times. She used the word unprecedented, and it was it was some ridiculous amount. I'll get you know if I quote the actual number, but it's once every several pages. Um, but it's not really an unprecedented time. It's just you know it's kind of a it's basically this we're watching capitalism at work. But so Zubov she she correctly identifies that these things are designed to collect data. Um, the problem though is in the uh, assertion that this is going this is going to be done basically to you know, to brainwash us and to basically take away our free will, which is effectively what her argument is. Um, and it's not so much that it's because, because one of the things is, like I said, it, it's an open question about whether or not targeted advertising works. And, you know, this is tied up with the issues of kind of like machine learning and how, how do we model things? And, you know, I've got a, an old dear friend of mine who is a, uh, who's a, a, you know, an, an engineer um, who deals with, you know, with machine learning. And, you know, as he points out to me, he says, you know, they're doing good on machine learning if they can get it to, a, if they can get a program or an algorithm to identify what kind of rock they're looking at, mm-hmm. let alone a human being. So um, that's not so much the worry. The worry is that, as you say, these things are being used in a predictive way um, as if they can predict the future. And so what that actually does, though, is it ends up shaping not just kind of advertising policy, but public policy, because people treat data as if it is kind of the word of God, mm-hmm. as if it is, as if it is the final word, as if data is truth, as opposed to basically, um, you know, 
as opposed to it, what it actually is, which is observations collected through a bias, uh, through biased uh, um, platforms or tools that are used by people who don't fully understand the whole nature of, of experience because right. nobody does and then apply it as if they could actually do that. So it's not so much that it, it can brainwash us or anything like this. It's that it could be, it'll be used by kind of like policymakers who think it can in order to set, for instance, insurance rates or to cut off, um, to, to cut off credit to certain groups because they, they don't fit the predictive model. Right. So, so it, there's a bit of nuance there. She's very good at identifying the data collection thing, less so on what the actual danger is. Um, and to get to your, your more general question, again, we'll bring it back to Mitch Renichek, um, who I think that if I, if I were to recommend that people who want to understand kind of data um, and data collection and, and its role in all of this, um, I would strongly suggest Srenicek over, over Zuboff's book. It's definitely shorter. It's like one seventh the length. It's, it's a, and it's a very straightforward read. But what he points out is that these companies are designed to collect data because data has become this commodity that is now seen as the, a vital ingredient to um, prosperity, profit, uh, economic growth, um, and, all, and also like state surveillance as well. And one of the things that really sticks, um, sticks with me with respect to his book is the idea that it is foolish to ask these companies to change their ways with respect to data collection and privacy because that's what they're designed to do. Yeah. So the only way to get around that is to somehow, you know, get rid of that incentive, either through competition that encourages kind of like companies that don't do that, or through some kind of regulation or a public option or something. But again, it's this business model. If you've got companies that are designed to collect data, um, it would be it's silly to kind of think that you know they're not they're going to stop doing that if we just say please. Okay, so bringing it back to the more concrete discussions about how to govern some of the platforms that we're uh, interacting with on a daily basis, you, in a recent paper, talk about different forms of legitimacy in trying to think through how some of these platforms should be regulated or how they should be governed, I suppose, is a different way of putting that. Could you talk us through that and maybe try, like we could, we could explore how that would apply to different kinds of the platforms that we're talking about here, right? I mean, I think in the last 15 minutes, we've especially been talking about what I think is usually referred to as social media. But presumably, you know, these things would also apply to something like Uber, right? Which, which has been our other example. Sure. Um, I mean, for me, the question is, the, the, my starting point for all of this mm -hmm. is that there are always rules governing all of our interactions. Right. Um, the question is always who is setting them. And okay. again, like I said, you know, earlier, it's not always, it's not always countries, you know, we, we think of like laws coming from them and, and, uh, and then kind of like you regulating how say businesses work. Facebook's terms of service are more consequential for how people are allowed to act and express themselves on Facebook than, uh, than you know, a country's laws. They're the kind of the first reference for Facebook when they decide what should stay up and what should say, stay down. Mm -hmm. So the question is who's setting them and, and with what legitimacy? Because the, the, thing, right. about, uh, the thing about speech, but it, you, it's not only about speech, but about, uh, about you know, kind of like financial regulation or, or labor regulation or anything like this is that Honest people and, you know, democratic countries can have honest disagreements about, about how much regulation there should be in an area and what should that regulation do. Yeah. Um, the economist Danny Roderick, who I, I draw on for, my, a lot of this work, for a lot of the work I've done in this area, he highlights, for instance, um, as an economist, he highlights that, you know, for instance, the United States has a much a greater, shall we say, tolerance for risk when, with respect to financial regulation than Europe does. The problem, though, is that there's no optimal amount of, of regulation in finance or in speech. There's no way to say that, you know, th there's trade-offs, right? With finance, right. basically, you have looser regulation, which means that, you know, you'll have like, you know, perhaps you'll have a, a, you know, a greater booming economy, but you'll also be kind of like, you know, also, you know, as we saw with the global financial crisis in 2008, you could potentially also ruin the entire world's economy. Um, whereas the European model might be, or, or like even the Canadian model, it might be much more staid and, and conservative, but it's going to keep kind of keep on going on 
um, without uh, without actually kind of wrecking the the rest of the economy. So there's always trade-offs. Same thing with speech. Um, the United States is an outlier with respect to uh, to its approach to what speech it allows. Other countries, like say Canada, have you know very you know definite uh, preferences against hate speech that you don't see in the United States. Formal ones, legal ones. Who's right there? As a Canadian, you know, I'm very, I'm very happy with the Canadian system, but you know, Americans take very seriously, you know, the First Amendment. Yeah. So, um, but we can't say who's right or who's wrong because who knows? It's it basically it's it's a value choice. Exactly. Yeah. And what what that means, though, in, in those situations, um, if there's no kind of like technical optimal answer, what the important thing is, how do you reach the decision, and who gets to make the decision? Um, and this leads me to the, the importance of, uh, of democratic accountability as a standard that we can use to judge how, uh, you know, the, the legitimacy of, of, of platform governance proposals or platform governance rules. I like it. Okay. So um, you talk through four different examples in your paper of proposals for platform governance. And I suppose you sort of um, jump back and forth between different kinds of platforms but they're still trying to solve similar issues. The, the paper, which I, I co-wrote with uh, Clara, Clara Iglesias-Keller, talks about uh, talks about basically social media. We, we talk mm-hmm. we mentioned it as platforms, but it's, it's social media. Right. Um, okay. And I think the reason we did that was just because it's, again, it's top of mind whenever we think about platforms. Exactly, so yeah. we just focused on that. Um, and the, the, the kind of the question that we uh, posed to ourselves is like, again, how do we evaluate democratic legitimacy if that's if that's the standard we want to use how do we evaluate that these companies uh have global reach Mm -hmm. and they're treated as global companies although i i think it's more useful to think of them as american companies with global reach so how how do you deal with that so you know lots of different countries lots of different people involved and so the, the uh what we what we kind of settled on was you know let's think about the european union so the european union mm-hmm. also has these uh, ha- has long standing concerns with its democratic legitimacy uh, because it's not a state it's a collection of states it's 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 you know it's it's this new kind of super regional organization um, but that also takes democratic accountability seriously and so uh, we used or we applied to uh, to the question of, of this, you know, uh, a political scientist uh, named Vivian Schmidt suggests that, and she's drawing on work from the EU kind of democratic legitimacy literature. And she says, okay, well, let's see, three part, let, we can decompose democratic legitimacy into three parts because the EU, EU, you know, there's some direct elections, but not a lot, right? So she says, okay, we can look at input legitimacy, throughput legitimacy, and output legitimacy. So input legitimacy, this is kind of like your straight up, uh, you know, is somebody, you know, was somebody voted, was the person making the decision voted on, uh, are they accountable to the people for their, for their, uh, for their decisions, that kind of thing. So, you mm-hmm. know, straight up democracy, you know, that's kind of what we've got, you know, in, in democratic countries. She says the other two parts, though, um, are throughput legitimacy, which kind of is how well does the process of actually making a policy and making laws uh, work, you know, and that's yeah. things like transparency, uh, you know, effectiveness in terms of like, does it get done in, in a uh, decent amount of time? Um, does it involve input from various affected uh, kind of like civil society groups or businesses and, and, and outsiders like that, that kind of thing. The third part though, it, or not though, but the third part is output legitimacy. And that's the question is, does whatever the government or the organization come up with uh, does the decision reflect the values uh, and norms of, of the polity in question? Uh-huh. So, yeah, so you're left with a situation where, um, and they interact in interesting ways. So, like, if you've got high input legitimacy, it can make up for, like, low output legitimacy. And you can think of that as, like, you know, all oh, the government did something stupid, but, you know, what are you going to do? They were elected, so, you know, it's legitimate in that way. And, you know, similarly, you know, it can work also the same way in reverse with respect to, you know, a good decision might, you know, might make you think, okay, well, they may, you know, they might be idiots, but, uh, you know, the decision's kind of okay. Um, The throughput legitimacy, so so things like transparency, which incidentally are the things that we tend to focus on, or that that activists um, and, and people who are making proposals in this area tend to focus on, 
um, like trend, like I said, like transparency, they don't do a lot for legitimacy really because um, people expect as a bare minimum that the, that, that the processes that they're subjected to are going to run well. Mm-hmm. So when they, when they do run well, you don't get any credit for it, but when they run poorly, of course, you know, that's how governments lose elections and right. it can, like throw everything into disarray. So they don't get really credit for that. So what we did, like you said, is we, we took these, in, the idea of input, throughput, and output legitimacy and applied it to uh, four, uh, four, kind of four paradigmatic forms of, uh, of, of platform governance. And, so- and we went from there. Maybe let me try to, uh, in a very sort of blunt way, try to adapt or use this framework to to talk about Facebook as it exists today, right? So I think a lot of fans of market governance would say that Facebook has a lot of input legitimacy in a certain way, because it seems to be that a lot of people are flocking to those uh, to to this platform, right? So I mean, obviously, this is not the same as a voting mechanism, but you could argue that in some way, you know, people are voting with their feet or with their thumbs, I guess, right? Because uh-huh. they're on, on Facebook so much. Right. Um, Everyone's inside, yes. Exactly. So throughput legitimacy, um, probably quite low. No idea how decisions are made, really. Um, very intransparent and, um, frankly, somewhat unclear what the rules are to, to a certain extent. Output legitimacy, now we're really getting into trouble, right? Because it seems like a lot of people are very upset with uh, some of the outcomes of whatever it is that Facebook is doing. Is I mean, obviously, this is a bit of a blunt characterization, but does that map onto to how you're um, thinking this about this? Well, here's here's how I would uh, kind of adapt that. So I, I will say in the paper that we did look at the Facebook Oversight Board as kind of an attempt to deal with these uh, to deal with these uh, governance okay. issues. Um, so in terms of in terms of legitimacy through the marketplace, basically, it's like you know the, the legitimacy here. That's not so much a a democratic legitimacy as it is like you know you know, people are using it, so they must be okay with it. Um, You know, as as I explained earlier, though, that if you're in a monopoly position, that doesn't really kind of work, because you've got either no, you've got no choice. And if you're, if you're effectively, your, your kind of, you know, town square has been outsourced to Facebook, you've got to use Facebook. So that's not, that's not so, uh, that's not really uh, so convincing. So coming back to the to the fact that it's a platform with network effects, meaning that switching is really costly, so and and possibly um, undermined by the fact that the network is so, uh, the network is so dominant, so, which then increases the need for other forms of governance because market governance is imperfect in this case. Precisely so, mm-hmm. um, and so. But when we're looking at it also with respect to democratic legitimacy, the question we ask ourselves is who's setting the rules. Right. And if the market were functioning perfectly, then maybe you could say that, okay, well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is being held in check by, by competition. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously, you know, whether or not it could happen in the future, that's obviously 100% not happening now. He's isolated from, from, mm-hmm. from these decisions. And so with respect to the Facebook oversight board and Facebook in general on input legitimacy, we argue that it has very, very low input legitimacy because, uh, well, oh, we didn't okay. think... Yeah, we can think of it for two reasons. So first of all, um, you know, who is making the decisions on the Facebook oversight board? And these people were uh, initially appointed by Facebook, and then it becomes kind of like self-appointing in a sense where they get appointed by, by themselves. There's no accountability there. This is basically experts or basically Facebook hiring its, its preferred people um, for whatever reason. Um, and them hiring, them hiring um, based on some other criteria, but not it's not a representative issue. And it's that it's that representativeness and accountability that really matters. The way Facebook Oversight Board is set up is as if human rights and as a speech regulation was a technocratic matter, as opposed to something that involves a great deal of interpretation um, and interpretations where honest people, like say you or myself, we could honestly disagree about what is the best way forward. So it's and so that's the first part. The second part, and probably the, the most important to be blunt, is the fact that Mark Zuckerberg is still the one making the decisions. Yeah. So at the end of the day, it's it's basically it's a, it's a one person show. Um, there's no input legitimacy there. There's no way to fire Mark Zuckerberg if he makes a stupid decision, as we've seen over the past 15 years. Now, with respect to throughput legitimacy, you're, I think you're absolutely right um, in terms of uh, 
in terms of how Facebook governs its business, its algorithm and how like, or which is basically just the rules that it sets in place to automate decisions about content. It's very unclear. No one's quite sure how it works. It's a proprietary secret. Um, uh, we have to depend on whistleblowers for that kind of thing. With respect to the Facebook oversight board, it actually improves the situation a little bit because it forces or the way that Facebook has set it up, set, set up the Facebook oversight board, it basically, it, there's more, a bit more transparency as, as uh, with respect to how things happen within mm -hmm. Facebook. Um, that said, this, this, uh, this throughput legitimacy is limited by the fact that it is, it, that the oversight board itself has a very narrow mandate um, that Facebook can itself, you know, decide not to uh, implement uh, you know, recommendations in certain areas. So it's got a very kind of restricted mandate. Um, and even with those, uh, on those issues, I was just seeing, uh, you know, just a day or so ago, uh, something suggesting that Facebook was concerned about the rapid or the high number of recommendations that the oversight board was producing and that it couldn't deal with them all. So, oh, okay. so yeah, so it's, uh, it's the oversight board improves things somewhat, but not a lot. With respect to it, it's with respect to uh, output legitimacy that's probably for me the most kind of interesting one because it's all about is the decision seen as legitimate based on the values of of the polity and so this mm. gets to the question of who is the polity who is who is who are the yeah. people who is the group in question that you want to refer to Facebook is treating this uh, and and quite honestly the you know, yeah face so Facebook is treating this as a global community but you know as we know differences there are huge differences and like i said legitimate differences about how speech should be regulated um across borders across societies and so um it so it's hard to say that it has output legitimacy there because um it's in well we can say that you know that there should be global support for freedom of expression how exactly that manifests itself or should manifest itself is, is uh, will differ by country, by community, by society. And that's without even getting into, you know, questions of authoritarianism and, and authoritarian governments. So if we just talk purely about democ liberal democratic uh, societies, there's differences. Um, and we can see how this plays out um, with respect to one of uh, the oversight board's earliest decisions with respect to a, uh, to uh, a, a piece of content uh, related to uh, to Myanmar that uh, that Facebook took down because it violated its own terms of it, it said it violated its own terms of service with respect to uh, I think it was hate speech. Um, anyways, it was thought as, as kind of a uh, you know it shouldn't be on there because it violated its terms of service. Um, it took it down. The Facebook Oversight Board reinstated it. Oh. So so the so the question is who's right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, and, you know, if, if someone, you know, if, uh, you, know, you know, if someone dispassionately looking at this could, could see an argument on, you know, on, on both sides, as they say, mm. but the, but the question for legitimacy isn't, it is, does it satisfy the community? But here it's, it's impossible to say because the community is, is far too vast. And so that kind of global governance with like a Facebook oversight board or even uh, Facebook itself, it lacks that legitimacy in large part because it's not embedded within, within the countries in which it operates. The only country it's really embedded in and the only country it's really res deeply responsive to is the United States itself. Okay, that's interesting. So that seems like a structural challenge to these gigantic platforms then. Yeah. Um, because their polities, their, their, their user base is just too, too large to, to really um, gain legitimacy on that front. But so, I mean, short of saying you know we're going to regulate all social media companies as national utilities uh, in some sort of format that you were alluding to earlier which is conceivable right i mean it's not impossible or i don't know i'm not sure if it's desirable who knows but that's neither here nor there but short of that what are other approaches to platform governance that you discuss in the paper and how do they um perform on those three metrics yeah well i mean I think what my research um, and kind of line of investigation highlights is the problem 
the problems that arise if we don't take the question of democratic accountability, democratic legitimacy seriously. Uh-huh. Um, because otherwise we're left in a situation where decisions are, are, you know, are made within a company and the only chances that we have are reformed is as um, you know, as you know, as my partner, you know, says, basically, you end up with Americans fighting with Americans about how to run the world, um, which is not satisfying if you're in the rest of the world. If you just have to kind of hope that the United States does the right thing, which it might. I think sort of one knee-jerk reaction to that might be democratic accountability. Is, is this the place for this? Is this not something that only happens in the context of actual government? Nobody's necessarily asking for uh, democratic accountability at the workplace, although, you know, I mean, in, to some extent, there's something like that, or that there's at least sort of consideration that go into that direction. There's places in the world where that's uh, a reality, but I mean, that's not really what I want to go get into here. Mm-hmm. But the question is, uh, people might have the feeling that this is a bit of a weird concept to insert in this context. Uh, could you defend that? Sure. Um, you know, and it might be worthwhile thinking about kind of like, uh, you know, democratic accountability in the workplace. And it's not so much that, you know, that ever that uh, that the government should tell everybody exactly that, that, that basically the workers should be allowed to vote on every single thing that they do. Right. But in fact, there is democratic accountability in the workplace because we've got workplace regulations. We've got labor regulations. Uh-huh. We've got environmental regulations. Um, and the reason we have those, uh, and the reason that, that happens at the domestic level is because that's the level at which democracy exists right now. Um, it, you know, If we could have a global polity, a global democratic polity, then we could deal with these issues on a global level, but we don't. So, so again, one of the things I'm trying to do is kind of like highlight the, this idea that, you know, in all these other areas, um, including, you know, including a supposedly very globalized area like banking and finance, we have strong, uh, we, have, we have strong regulation and, seen as, and it's seen as legitimate at the domestic level. So one of the things that, um, so I, I don't think that it's, it's necessarily, uh, you know, why would we do it in this area? I think the question is kind of like, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you <laughs> subject uh, the companies that basically uh, that are so important to uh, a, com- a country's social life, or to you know, or to its uh, to how it uh, runs its uh, you know hotel sector, or how mm. how it runs its transportation sector? Why wouldn't you subject it to that? Because again, if you're not setting the rules, somebody else is, and they're going to be setting it for their own purposes. I should also say there's nothing, you know, necessarily insidious about this. I mean, you know, companies yeah. are designed to make money and they will do so however they can. And, and you know, at the same time too, government should be looking out for their, uh, for their, uh, for, for their citizens, uh, you know, best interests. Ideally. Yeah. Ideally. Yeah. And again, here, I'm, and here I'm talking uh, again, I'm not even getting into the conversation about like what goes on in authoritarian countries. I'm just thinking about, you know, you know, a country, uh, you know, a pretty democratic country like Canada that, you know, would like, you know, Google to return its phone calls or, you know, might have some different ideas about what counts, about how to run a, uh, how best a, a, a search engine or a social media company or a transportation company uh, might be run. Just um, to elaborate on your point, companies are trying to make money, for sure. And exactly as you're saying, you know, they're, they're not necessarily insidious in that process but as you were saying you know along every step of the way of them trying to come up with a way to govern their own platforms they're going to make value judgments and as you were alluding to as well is that there are not necessarily perfect answers to those questions and in the same way you know if you govern any kind of public space democratically you're going to have to make value judgments and some of these are going to leave some worse off than others Um, so i think the the ideal, you know, and I think that's what you're getting at here too, is not to make everyone perfectly uh, well off in a sense, right? It's not the case that government, even in an ideal sense, represents everyone's interests at the same time in the same way. That's impossible, right? Because we have conflicting interests and we're going to need to make value judgments in context where there are trade-offs. But 
right? It's the process that matters. And I think that's what's really coming out in your, in your paper discussing here platform governance, right? It's about the process that is being seen legitimate. And I can say, okay, well, you know, my interests were respected and considered in this process. And maybe I didn't win 100% in this case in that time, but it's still that I'm seeing and I'm honoring the process. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I like starting with a democratic accountability as opposed to say like a human rights standard for, for thinking about these things. Um, that said, very much in favor of human rights, you know, obviously, mm. perhaps obviously. The issue though is it's not so much, the, the, the nice thing about democratic legitimacy as a standard though is it's not so much about making sure that, that the right, that human rights are interpreted in the right way, but rather that when we realize that we've interpreted human rights in the wrong way, that we put in a stupid law or something that kind of that has a, has a negative effect or that oppresses a certain group, that we're able to change it, and uh-huh. that our mm-hmm. and that our thinking about these things can can uh, can evolve and, and change on you know based on how our changing view of the world and and what's important and what and and you know and what values should be prioritized or. Or, or, or deprioritized. So it, it's it's that it's the idea that it's it's not just about people accepting the decision, but also it's the realization that the decision can be changed. There's a process, like you say, mm-hmm. for for this happening, and um, and this this is why you would need some kind of democratic accountability. The other thing too that would be nice, of, and it's also kind of a call to embed uh, these social media companies and these companies in general within the societies in which they operate. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so that it's uh, so for instance um, you know I remember reading you know as a you know kind of a young economic student in Carleton University in Ottawa Canada talking about how the Canadian financial system is set up uh, with a principle of one of the principles was moral suasion so the idea that if uh, you know for something that isn't um, if there's if the kind of the finance minister sees a problem that might be developing with the banks and that we only have a small limited number of, you know, very tightly regulated banks in Canada. If they see a problem with the financial system and the monetary system developing, he can call up, you know, whoever is the president of the banks and say, uh, we really want you to keep a look on this. So mm-hmm. even though like, you know, they don't have, they're not breaking the laws or anything like this, but you might want to keep a, keep an eye on this. And so the fact that they're embedded in, and, and, and you know, it's where Canada's had an incredibly successful and stable uh, financial system. Um, um, I, I would put our financial system up against the, you know, the best in the world in terms of delivering actual stability. Um, and so what, what, you know, what the finance minister there is doing is kind of like, you know, capitalizing on those tight kind of like community connections to kind of make sure that things run, run smoothly. And so the, and the, the bankers there are going to be also responsive to Canadian interests and Canadian values in the interests of, of the country as opposed to kind of a disembedded uh, global company that is delivering the same service, but is only res- is not really responsive to this tiny market of 36 million people. Thinking about, um, you know, democratic accountability and, and how to deal with, uh, with global platforms, uh, one of the, it's, you know, in one sense, it could be taken as kind of, you know, like a you know, the, this whole kind of idea of a, of a splinter net or the kind of like the balkanization yeah. of, of, of of, of community, which um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think what, you know, the idea would be something along the lines of, again, what Danny Roderick calls with respect to uh, kind of globalization in general, which is basically kind of a thin level of globalization where, you know, it, that recognizes that you're, that you can't have actual democratic accountability at the global level at least not now, and uh, probably never, I would argue. Uh, so we've got to deal with, if, if, we're, if we're serious about countries and, and all the our companies, if we're serious about companies uh, respecting and responding to the needs of the people um, with which they're working, um, you've got to have accountability there at, at, the, at the domestic mm-hmm. level. But at the same time, too, you can have a thin level of, of globalization. Of, uh, think about it in terms of just one company ruling them all, an interoperable world of social media companies governed by, you know, you know, treaties and agreements arrived upon by democratically elected governments that would set kind of like bare minimum standards for, 
for the interoperation and the accountability of these companies. And so, you know, in, in my ideal world, you'd have a situation where you could still have like, kind of like a Facebook, but you could have you would have a Facebook Canada, and it might be run as a uh, as a crown corporation. Whereas in the United States, much more of a free market tradition, even private industry, you know, it might be seen as being that's fine. We'll let we'll have Facebook be Facebook there, and they're interoperable, but but not the same company. Much in the same way that we've got in the, in the financial sector, where uh, you know I discovered when you know I spent um, you know eight eight or nine months in Australia and found out that HSBC, uh, the bank down there, uh, has the same name as the one that you know the same bank that I used in, when I was in Mexico, but they don't talk to each other because they mm-hmm. respond to they're in completely different regulatory frameworks, um, and so there's that kind of like level of separation um, because of course the um, the preference for risk is different from Mexico than Australia. So that would be kind of my, uh, my ideal for, for this area is a world of uh, interoperability um, and democratic accountability. Blaine Haggard, thank you so much for being part of the forum. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.